Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now, here's your host, Nick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I'd like to take some time to salute trailblazing genre filmmakers from a particularly transformative decade in cinema history. The 1970s were a time of massive upheaval in the movie industry. The tools of making movies were getting lighter, less expensive, and the concept of the truly independent film from truly independent filmmaking minds became a reality. Nowhere was that more apparent than in the horror film world. Although the doors started to open in the 1960s, as usual when discussing cultural touchstones through the decades, there is some overlap. But I want to give credit and thanks to those original minds in the horror genre who helped change the course of the modern horror film, and particularly those filmmakers who have passed in the interim. Herschel Gordon Lewis certainly broke ground in the 60s with his lurid and grotesque 2000 Maniacs, Blood Feast, and The Gore Gore Girls, and other titles which placed realistic and repulsive splatter effects above all else. But nearing the end of the 60s and flourishing even more in the 70s, George A. Romero proved that you could have a box office hit with an independent film like Night of the Living Dead, even though he didn't profit from it at the time. But his zombie films defined the filmic Living Dead for us in ways that still inform every zombie movie made since. And he seemed to create almost single-handedly the social comment horror film. But it was the 70s where it really bloomed. Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre was unrelenting and informed by the Vietnam War that was taking place. Smack dab in the middle of the 70s, no film was more transgressive and instrumental in the evolution of cinematic tales of terror, bringing the horror home from the mists of far off Europe and onto the American highways and into the small towns. Of course, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street series was a canny stew of dreams and nightmares brought to life with wit and style. 
Larry Cohen's It's Alive and God Told Me To were powerful personal horror pieces about playing God and blind religious devotion, respectively, and they could only have been made by one filmmaker. The sharp, funny, and scary insanity of Larry's films was unique and powerful. The loss of these masters of the dark arts looms over a genre in metamorphosis. We all feel their loss personally and professionally. Most of them were friends of mine and were among the sweetest, most generous people I've ever known. But we still have their films to remind us of their grand eruptions in a previously polite world of movie horror. Herschel, George, Toby, Wes, and Larry, we thank you and we miss you. Our guest worked closely with one of those legends on another course-changing film series that seemed to evoke the word meta for the first time. Kevin Williamson's screenplay for Scream became the heart of Wes Craven's outstanding career, and the new Scream celebrates it anew. We'll talk with Kevin about Scream then and now, and much, much more after this. Coming soon to dread, ditched. Desperate to escape an overturned ambulance, a group of paramedics are trapped with violent prisoners. The group quickly discover that they are the victims of an ambush with the perpetrators hunting them down one by one. Ditched will be available on demand and digital everywhere on January 18th. Pre-order on iTunes now. Ditched. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to see where it all began. You were a kid, you, you grew up in Texas and in North Carolina. Um, what was it like? Were, were you an outsider like most kids who were fans of the genre? Um, yeah, I mean, I always, well, I always felt that way for sure. Even if there were, even if I wasn't, I always felt like an outsider. And I was for the most part, I was an awkward, uh, geeky kid. Um, certainly in my early days through Texas and on to through, uh, North Carolina and which I pretty much, I call home because my entire family is originally from North Carolina. So I spent some time in Texas. I'm the son of a fisherman, which, oh, wow. it, which was very helpful when doing, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> I uh, guess so. Um, and my, yeah, my dad took me on a tour of, of the boats and showed me how the inner workings of a, a trawler work so that I could sort of maximize it for scares. Um, but, um, but I was always that geek who was, you know, greatly the outsider always, um, and certainly being gay, I think also played a part in it too, because I was already from the get-go feeling different and not normal and not part of. And I always felt like a little something, you know, at the time when you're still back in, my day because I'm I'm a lot older coming out was a different experience and so it was a little more I was more guarded and more scared and 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 I had no one to really talk to in a small town so it was it wasn't like perhaps how it is today where it's just much more accepting and welcomed and so forth so did you have friends that you could share these VHS movies with? Uh, yes, I did. Yes, I did have a little core group of friends and we and we would watch horror movies together. And whether they wanted to or not, I would certainly corral them. And I would be the one who would say, here's what we're watching. And I went and got a job at a gas station to and pump gas. And one of the reasons I did is because they also had a video rental program. Because <laughs> it was a small town. It serviced a lot of things at once. And I would, I could have free rentals. And I would just, you know, nice. check out movies constantly at uh, Max Minimark. <laughs> so 
so your first um, interest seemed to be acting. I know you went to the uh, Easter, East Carolina University and majored in theater arts. Was your intent to be an actor? Um, well, my intent was always to make movies. I always wanted to be Steven Spielberg. That was my goal from the get-go. But, you know, you put one foot in front of the other, and the only things available to me in with regard to the arts was the drama club. So I fell into the drama club. And I wrote a lot of the plays that we performed um, and little one-act plays here and there. And I went down that path and when I got to college, one of the things that put me in college, I got a scholarship in acting. And, you know, I, of course, I actually applied for NYU film school, but I couldn't afford it. I couldn't, um, I didn't have the means uh, or the financial aid to go. And so I went to ECU and I majored in drama, which was my scholarship. And that helped me a great deal. And, um, and I proceeded to do the acting thing. And I, you know, I just got wrapped up in it. And once you get involved in that, it's becomes your life. And, um, but in the meantime, I was always writing. I had never stopped. I think college is where I first wrote the opening scene to screen. And you know, I wrote it as sort of a one-act play and nothing ever came of it. I put it in a drawer. It was like 40 pages of just a lot of, you know, um, a girl talking on a telephone. And it, but it did, but it did sort of, I show you what the, you know, it, it, you can, you can compare it to the opening scene. There's a lot of the same uh, intent, but it was a different, it was a different beast, but it did give me the idea for Scream, certainly. Oh. And, and everything, a lot of different inspirations came all came together to make Scream happen. Well, we'll, we'll get into the whole Scream mythos deeply because we're back again with a brand new one. Um, but I, I'm interested in who your first heroes were. What were those movies that, that really compelled you uh, beyond the Steven Spielberg of it all? Well, beyond, I mean, Jaws was the first big blockbuster to come along. You know, I was, a, I was an avid reader uh, from the word go. I was, uh, my mom was a big reader and she always had a book in the house and I was always trying to read it behind her. Whenever she sat it down for five minutes, I'd grab it, start reading it. And I remember Jaws was one of those books by Peter Benchley. And I picked it up and I started reading it and I could not put it down. And it was just, it grabbed me. And I just thought it was so, so powerful. And I loved the story and I could not wait for the movie. And I started following the movie in all the uh, magazines. And then the movie came out and I stood in line several days to try to get a ticket. And it was, one of the, it was back then when you got turned away because there was only so many seats. They, they didn't show it in six theaters. And um, it was, and I saw it probably five times in the theater and I thought it was just the best movie I'd ever seen. And it was such a, an experience. And just, and I remember another movie, Halloween was the movie that did that. John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978. I went with, uh, we had to get all of our parents' permission. I went around and got all the parents to write down that they could go see, that all my friends could go see an R-rated film. And then one of the parents took us to see it. And um, we loved it. And it was such an emotional roller coaster ride. It was the first time I'd ever seen audience interaction to that degree, how the audience wow. was screaming at the screen and screaming at Laurie Strode, you know, not to drop the knife and things like that. And, and I wanted that, ex I wanted to do that. I knew that's what I wanted to do. That's great. Well, so you were a teenager when you were exposed to this kind of movie. Um, for me, uh, they didn't really have them <clears throat> at that time. I'm a decade older than you. 
I was 13, I think. when You were a teenager when you really became absorbed into these films. And teenagehood is very important to your work. A lot of these uh, of your projects, from Scream to Killing Mrs. Tingle or Teaching Mrs. Tingle, uh, to I uh, Know What You Did Last Summer, they're not just about kids, but they're about outsiders and, and people learning to cope with a new society and are thrust into these horrific horrors. So tell me about the importance of the teenage experience with horror. The horror genre is full of sort of those uh, big emotions, you know, to scare you. You know, the, 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 uh, they seem like they're very, they, they're in line with the hormones of a teenager, I believe. You know, they're, being a teenager, there's just a lot of emotions. You know, when you fall in love, it's, it's, it's all consuming. And when you're um, angry, it's, you know, you get really angry. It's like, you know, there's, you, we don't really learn the balance and temperament of our feelings and our emotions. It, you know, they're, they're sort of, you're very, very hormonal as a, as a teenager. And that's what makes it, that's what makes first love all consuming and how wonderful to write about it. That's why I love Dawson's Creek because I got to write about all those first. And I think um, uh, that's what happens with uh, the horror genre sort of has that same sort of um, uh, visceral feeling about it. And I think it's just, you know, it, it's something that teenagers can really sort of, um, uh, connect to in a very easy, you know, a very sort of palpable way. And it's, I always did anyway, I'm speaking for myself. I certainly can't speak for teenagers everywhere. Certainly not at 56 years old, <laughs> but I would not disrespect the, the genre, the, the teenager that way. I've always been trying to be very respectful of the teenager and the teenage experience. And, and, and if I'm not exactly true to the actions of a teenager, or I hope I'm true to their, um, honesty, yeah, I try to be honest to their feelings and their emotions. And, and so I think that's one of the things I've always loved. That's why I like writing teenagers is I, I do love all those first. It's a very extreme era and an extreme time of life. And I think that's a perfect, and as a, as a, and I know that's when I fell in love with our film. So I think, and that's, that, that's the main audience. You know, I look at the tracking <laughs> for, for these movies and it's like, you know, the, the teenage group is the highest. So and how wonderful to be able to maintain that inner teenager into your 50s and beyond. You know? Ooh, yeah, right. I mean, I'm so lucky that I still have a job. I, I sort of <laughs> feel like my, my, um, uh, my moment, I, you know, I'm 56 years old. I, now, certainly I have no business writing teenagers today, and it's not something I set out to do. Um, I sort of tell the stories I want to tell, and I've kind of you know, it's stretched. I think Vampire Diaries we started in the teenage years for sure. But um, um, I'm looking to do more adult fare and uh, write closer to my own experience. Like, you know, when I sit down to write, who knows what I write? It just sort of comes out. But um, I don't know if the teenager, you know, is some, the teenage experience is something I'll be doing much of. <laughs> well, I want to go back again to the whole acting thing because you didn't just study it. You were on another world. You were on a soap opera. You uh, <laughs> actually had have acting credits. Yeah, well, I mean, if you call them credits, they were still glorified <laughs> appearances on TV. Um, it was, you know, if if you weren't looking closely, then you miss me. Those kind of moments. But uh, my mother sure enjoyed them and recorded all of them. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I had some. I had a little bit to do on another world, and and so forth, and. I, um, I was trying to think my last acting credit was in Living Color, I believe, with Jim Carrey. 
Right. <laughs> and that was right. my last bit, which is available on YouTube in a very embarrassing way. I had <laughs> lots of hair. And um, uh, yeah, I started out as an actor. Because once I got wrapped up into studying acting, I just sort of wanted to go to New York and, and I thought I'd be a playwright. Interesting. Yeah. But then you decided to take a trip to LA and move exactly. to LA. But yeah. even before that, I'm going to go back to your youth once again. You've said that you had a very transformative experience going to the Poe Museum in mm -hmm. Richmond, Virginia. Um, the, tell me about the effect that that had on you. Well, very briefly, I lived in Hampton, Virginia. I'm the son of a fisherman, so we moved around a little bit. Wherever uh, um, seasonal fish we were, were caught, and we were scalloping that year off in Hampton, Virginia, in the Tidewater area. And my parents took us to uh, Richmond one weekend, and, um, and we were touring the Poe House. We kind of stumbled upon it by accident. We were just walking down the street, and um, my mom saw it. And once again, she, she was the the reader of, of our um, family, and she was like, "Oh, it's the Edgar Allan Poe Museum!" And she got excited, and and um, I was like, and I kind of knew the name, but I didn't know enough. I didn't really know much about Edgar Allan Poe beyond the fact he, you know, wrote. Um, you know, Nevermore, um, right. The Raven. And so we went in and we walked in and it was amazing. It was like, um, I was in the house of a writer. It was, and they had it all set up with candles and it was just very Gothic and they, they really went for the mood and they, they nailed it. And I just remember how, how, um, it just made me feel. And they had paintings on the wall and they had the, the Raven written on the wall from, you had to travel from room to room to room to read it. And I thought it was just the most amazing thing. And I um, left it. My mom bought me his collected works. And I remember sitting in the backseat of the car, reading it all the way home. And I loved it. How so, old were you? Oh, well, that I probably was 15 then. Right. So and it had a big effect. And but the writing, it's interesting how you've concentrated on the writing and not so much on the directing as someone who wanted to be Steven Spielberg. Um, you came to L.A. Well, I, say, I did make my first horror film with an eight millimeter camera in my grandparents' backyard. And really? It was eight yes. millimeter, not even Super 8? You no, know, it was an eight millimeter and it was an Same old camera. Here. Same here. <laughs> it was an old camera that I found in the attic, and I was so shocked that it still worked. And it had the engine; it was like, and I got the, and I got the film together, and I found it, and uh, I got my friends together, and we just filmed a horror film. It was just a man, and what was interesting, we I used the things that I had with me, which was a slicker. I mean, talk about foreshadowing. I know what you did last summer. I had a slicker, uh, a hatchet, and I took a friend of mine from school and I had her running around from a killer. And I was sort of the, you know, and we, it was, it was fun. It was fun. And I cut it together in my bathroom and it was awesome. But um, uh, I wish I could find that so badly now. I would love to have my hands on that. Well, when you came to L.A. And, and went to UCLA and took screenwriting classes, mm -hmm. that was your focus was as a writer, not as a yes. director, not as an actor, but as a writer, right? Yes, yes. So was Killing Mrs. Tingle the first script that you optioned? Yes, it was. It was the first script I wrote. I, I started it in um, the, I was in uh, the extension uh, 
UCLA extension classes. There was a night class. I think it, I paid for 10, 10 weeks. And or a friend of mine paid for it. I didn't. I couldn't afford it. <laughs> and I took, and then within those 10 weeks, I began breaking it, outlining it, writing it. And I think I had the first 15 pages. And then the, the screenwriting teacher, Glenn Bennis, who was sort of the, was our, our professor, asked me if I wanted to join his private writing group that he wow. had on weekends. And I said, sure, absolutely, I'd love to. And I continued writing it. And that's where I met uh, Dan Barada and Melissa Rosenberg and others who were in the writing group who ended up um, uh, doing very, very well as well. And, um, and I you know, made lifelong friends. And also I began, uh, I, I began seeing myself as, a, as a, a real writer and something I could actually do for a living. Well, not only did you do it for a living, but the next time out with Scary Movie. And by the way, when I was with CAA at that time, they sent me the script to Scary Movie to read. And then Wes took it on to become oh. Scream. So I had actually seen it in its early days and, and it was a great read. It was oh, such wow. a good script. But that script went on to be become part of a bidding war that ended up, here you go, $400,000 sale on your first real try. So tell me about that experience and what it felt like that, that weekend where everybody's throwing their money in the hat. It was so crazy. I had gone through it briefly with Tingle and that I was able to option that to Interscope. And I think my option money was $75,000. And I thought still pretty good. I thought I had made it. I was rich. I thought I, I was just, you know, no more oodles and noodles. And I, um, but then think about it. I mean, you split that in half for taxes and what you're left with. And then I had to pay my college loan and all my debt, which I still, <laughs> everyone all was said and done. I, I was still $17,000 in the hole. <laughs> so it, did, it didn't do much for my, um, my sorority. I wasn't really able to upgrade at that point. I was still struggling. And then uh, they never made the movie, so I never got the rest of the money. And so then I wrote um, Scream. I had to write something a year had gone by, and I just was still starving. And I kept getting pushed to write something else because I thought Tingle was going to get made. I didn't know that people bought scripts and didn't make them <laughs> <laughs> and that became the norm yeah yeah i didn't know that that was normal and so i and i kept waiting around for it to get made and joe dante was attached to direct and then he then he never that never materialized and so i finally went off and wrote scary movie and very quickly and hoping i had something and and um that was that was scream and that became the scream in the bidding war and it was all that weekend was um, maddening because I had never gone through the process of, of you know a spec sale like that and having offers and but when you're someone like me who's this insecure little kid from North Carolina I just thought it was all going to go away every with every phone call I thought it was going to go away I remember sitting on my floor in my closet going I don't know what's happening <laughs> this is crazy and I couldn't and and no one I knew had been through it no one I knew was in the business so everyone no one could connect and tell me and advise me of how to feel or how to what how to respond. I was kind of on my own, and and it was it was it was a crazy experience. And but then it happened. It all turned out okay, you know. Um, and it turned so, out okay is the understatement of the decade. I would say. Yeah, 
it really it really changed my life forever, you know? Well, tell me about that process. I mean, you go from being a guy living, a struggling, hopeful writer in an apartment in Los Angeles, and then the Weinsteins buy your script for $400,000 to clear it out, uh, to clear out all the competitors, mm-hmm. and they're going to make it. At yeah. that investment, they're not going to just buy it and sit on it. They're going to make it. So tell me about the process of development and the eventual process of bringing in Wes Craven. Well, they did. It's funny because, you know, I think it was Oliver Stone's company who offered more money for the script. Oh, wow. And um, I remember um, Dimension Weinsteins were holding firm at their 400 against 600 or whatever it was. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I had a wonderful lawyer by the name of Patty Felker. And she said, Bob, she's, she's, she's they, that she's Oliver Stone buys scripts and develops them. She was, he may not make this movie. I know for, she says, I believe Bob Weinstein dimension. He's beginning this new company. It's dedicated to the kind of movie you just wrote. And I think he will make it right away. And I think it's more important that you get your movie made than taking an extra $50,000. You need to get your movie made. She says, that's what's going to help you, your career. And I went, okay, I want my movie made. That's all I care about. And so I said yes to Bob. And so he read it and didn't really have, the, the team over there at Dimension didn't really have any notes. They, they felt like it dragged in the beginning, in the middle, sorry. They thought that it dragged in the middle and that no one got killed for like 35 pages or something. Oh, and, dear. <laughs> and, and that the audience wouldn't sit for that. And so then... I think my rewrite, oh, and the motive. They thought that um, the motive, we did it just because it was fun, wasn't really, um, wasn't enough. So I went back and personalized it and added the part about the mom and connecting the mom to the affair and all of that. And it was just a lot of fun. So that there was both, you know, it made me realize the importance of motives being emotional. They needed, you know, yes, you can have sort of a cerebral idea behind the motive, but you better make it personal too. So that that's something an audience can always connect to. But your question was going back to, what was the, the seed of your question? Well, um, the whole idea of the development process and then attaching oh, a direction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that so those two notes were really the only notes. The Henry Winkler sequence was not in the original script, and I put that in there, and that was really it. And then they uh, went out to all these different directors, and they went to Wes Craven, and I believe he, from what I remember, he said no, I think in the beginning. It just wasn't something he was interested in doing. I think he was coming off Vampire in Brooklyn, and he just wanted, you know, he, well, I feel like Wes always wanted to step out of the genre, you know, it, it, which is par for the course. When someone puts you in a box, all you want to do is get out of it. So, um, and, you know, I feel like I've had that happen to me a little bit, you know, I'm just sort of in a box and I'm only seeing one way. And I mean, now I'm at the age where I love that box. <laughs> and I'll, stay, I'll live in that box forever. I'm quite happy in it, but yes. I can I'll, identify with that. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and, but there was a time when I didn't want to be in that box. And, and, but um, right now I don't care. I was, I'm so happy to be working and I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so blessed, but um, then Wes Craven, I guess, finally said yes to a meeting. I had met him too. In between all of this, his company had read the script 
And that's what, and I think the first person, that's where Julie Pleck came into my life because Julie Pleck was um, his assistant at the time. And she was the first one who had read the script over at the West Craven company. And she had given it to West and said, you need to do this. This is great. You should do this. This is exactly what, what, what the horror genre needs. You should, you need, she, like, she got it. And, and he read it again and, and he was flip-flopping. And finally, I think he agreed to a meeting. And, but I think we had to talk him into it. I think Bob Weinstein had to talk him into doing it. And he finally agreed to. But once he got on board, he was all in, you know. Um, and, and it just became the most amazing. I mean, I did not know the experience I was having then was so not normal. I did oh not God. realize that what I was going through was not what other writers went through. I didn't realize that I was... That, that, that my story was a little bit different in that I didn't get kicked to the curb. The director actually wanted to talk to me. The director actually invited me to his house to have lunch. The director actually, you know, invited me to the set and made me part of the production. And I got to go to the production meetings and I got to sit in casting and I got to go on location scouts. And I got to, I got to do all of the things I don't think writers typically do with the director. And I got to sit next to this amazing hero of mine and just chit chat with him. I, I didn't, I gotta tell you, I look back on that now and go, wow, did I have it? I really just got handed the keys to the kingdom in my very first experience in Hollywood. And it, you know, and, and now 25 years later, I can tell you, <laughs> it's not all, they're not all like that. <laughs> they certainly are. And, and, I and they don't that. all lead to $175 million box office either. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're absolutely. And so, you know, I think, you know, Hey, it's important to, <laughs> it's important to fail and succeed. You know, it's, 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 you gotta, that's the whole career. But um, uh, I remember Joel Schumacher once told me he was oh, another wonderful mentor of mine. And we met early on and after Scream. And I remember he told me, he said, do not let people judge you on one particular movie. Let them judge your career. You know, let them look back and reflect upon your entire career. Don't let, don't let them get you on one project. So if there's any filmmakers out there listening, I try to live to that and not let one, one project get me down. Um, um, Cursed, <laughs> but we had that. Um, uh, but I had it, had it made. I, you know, Wes was wonderful. He answered all my questions. He's the first person who made me realize that the written word had to go to screen and you had to picture it and that we had to paint a picture. And we had to, it's the first time I realized, oh, we're painting a picture. We've got to, like, you know, he, as a director, we have to create the world, you, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things that I took to television when I first started working in television as, as a writer, you get to be the showrunner and you get to create that entire world and, and, and you get to sort of, um, paint, paint it. And I, you know, you get, to, oh, I get to choose the wall color of the set. Oh, I see. Okay. So I'm casting this actress and she's going to be standing in front of this. Oh, okay. Oh, I get to choose the wardrobe. I get to, I get to say how these characters live and breathe. And, oh, it was just such an experience. I had no idea. And then I realized, oh, I, these all, everyone has a department. Everyone has their expertise and you count on them to bring you their interpretation of the script. And then you get to work with them and collaborate. I didn't realize all of those things. And, and, and I, you know, Wes taught me that. And Wes walked me through it. I don't think I ever could have had a better experience. Scream was um, amazing. And we also, you know, we were up in Northern California. We were stuck away in a small town. We all sort of were a tight-knit group. We all became a family. And it just sort of carried on into Scream 2 as well. Well, Scream was also inspired 
by a true story of a real serial killer. <laughs> yes. Tell me about those roots, but also the combination of telling a tr uh, something inspired by a true incident and the idea of doing a self-reflective horror movie that kind of, is, it takes itself seriously, but it mocks its conventions. Well, yes, because I, you know, we're, we're, I'm the, a child of the 80s and a child of the VCR. And so I have seen all these horror movies so many times during my childhood. So I know the ins and outs. And I, you know, you know, the oldest, here comes the opening scene. Here comes the first victim here. Here, you know, now we're going to be introduced to the final girl. And now we're going to, you know, so you just sort of get the template of these films. I know how the acts one, two, and three of them all. And you know how it's all going to, all these little characters are going to be killed off until the final girl is there running for her life. And yes, that's great, but we know that. We know the conventions, we know what's gonna happen. And we know there'll be one big surprise at the end <laughs> that'll make us jump out of our seat. And, and I felt like I needed, I couldn't write that movie. I didn't wanna write that movie because I knew that we'd done that. So I wanted to write a movie where all my characters had seen all those movies. And, and, and that, cause I think that's exactly where the nineties, where we were at when, when, when I wrote Scream is, is the slasher genre was kind of dead at the time because it's always cyclical and, and no one was really making movies in, in the mid nineties or slash successful slasher films. So I thought, let me write the movie I want to see with the characters that I want to write and let's see what happens. And that's kind of was sort of, I think I've always tried to do that, write something that I want to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about the backstory of that true story. Well, I was house sitting for a friend of mine. I had this friend who would pay. I, he would. Um, I was so broke. I was, he would pay me to dog walk and his dogs, and um, and the house sit for him when he went out of town. And I remember house sitting for him, and I was watching a, I don't know, a Dateline or it was probably twenty twenty. It was a a story on Danny Rollins and uh, Gainesville murders in Florida. And it was so, um, it was so scary listening to him talk about how he was such, oh, he was so creepy. He, how he was, um, he, he would leave their bodies um, staged so that people would, would, whoever discovered their bodies, they'd get like a, you know, a, a tableau of a severed head on a, on a TV set. And it was just so eerie. And I found it so creepy. And I got so, and I spooked myself so bad. I called my friend David and I said, um, are you watching this? It's so creepy. And then I walked into the den and the window was open. And I was like, it was wide open. It was just like a horror film. And there was wind blowing the curtain. And I'm like, holy you know, this is in, in um, Westwood. And I'm sitting there going, was that window always open? And I couldn't remember. And then the dog's not barking. And so I, I'm just freaking out. And I'm like, wait, was that call, closet closed or was it open? I'm starting just to second guess everything. And so my friend and I, while he's on the phone, I went and got a butcher knife out of the kitchen. And, we went, <laughs> and I made him stay on the phone with me while I checked every closet and under every bed and behind every shower curtain because I was that terrified. And I and he was on the phone making fun of me the whole time, going, kill, 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 kill. <laughs> I was like, shut up. And we got into it. Anyway, and we just started talking horror movies. And I kind of that that's when I got the idea to, you know, write scream. <laughs> I don't know. It, it launched it. I had written sort of this one act play in college and I pulled it out and I and I it was awful. And I kind of came up with um, the opening scene in Scream. And Tell me about your process. Do you do you start with an outline? Do you just sit down on page one and go through? 
when you're writing on spec, I know what the studio uh, assignment is like. I read a lot of the Sid Field books when I was growing up, and I love Sid Field. I, I kind of that was everyone has sort of whether it's Robert McKee or whoever it is, but for some reason the Sid Field books were the ones I found in my mall at my bookstore, and so those were the ones I read. And they really were helpful in terms of um, breaking down movies in Acts 1, 2, and 3 and, you know, the paradigm of the end of the, the Act 1, Act Break, and the midpoint and how it all connected with character and character's plot and how you can create a character that can move through your story. It just, that's how I, I really do outline. I do believe in structure. I do believe that you, um, uh, you have to follow a, a, a structure. I do believe your character has to have an arc. I do believe there has to be a journey, an emotional journey for your main character. I do believe all of that has to happen. And I also think you can take all of those rules and throw them out the window. Yeah. But I do believe you need to know those rules so that you can throw them out the window. So I think it's important to sort of study. And, and sometimes, you know, I, whenever I go to write, I pull out a book. I mean, I could pull open my bookshelf, right, open this cabinet right now and pull out five books that you will see that I always flip through whenever I start to write because it inspires me. I love to read about how to, how to make a movie and, and, um, um, and I've got a whiteboard right there. <laughs> so that I, you know, this is my little cubby hole in my house where I have been for the last uh, two years due to an epidemic. <laughs> and um, I just sit in here with my dog and I write and I shut the door and I stay here for hours and hours and hours. And I love writing. I don't know if other writers do, but because I know it's torturous and it's hard and it's a very difficult thing to accomplish. But, oh, it's great. But when you're sitting there by yourself and you're writing and you're on a roll and eight hours pass and you don't even realize it, yeah, you know, and you realize I'm, I've been holding my pee for two hours. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that because it sounds so horrible, but it's like, that's when you know you're, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, the joy of creating worlds on a keyboard is pretty hard to beat. Yeah. And that's what I love. And that's why I, when I started doing TV, I kept doing it because I, I felt, you, you know, I had not just that you have more power, whatever that means in this town, because I don't know if anyone really has it, but it gave me more options. And it gave me the ability, like I say, to paint with more brushes. And I, I, I like television because I could create worlds. I like pilots. I like, you know, I certainly don't enjoy doing season five, episode 17 <laughs> of a TV show. No one does. But, and we're all sort of, but I'm, I'm thrilled to get there. But let's face it, you've probably told the, sh the show's probably moving in the wrong direction at that point. But I, I do love creating a pilot. I do love creating a world. And I do love um, putting it all together. That's so much fun for me. And, it's, you know, it starts on the page and then you, you know, turn it, put it on its feet. And I love it. I think that's, that's good. I like collaboration. I like working with other writers. That's, that's the thing about when you're doing movies, it's a little lonelier. Yeah. Yeah. As a screenwriter on a feature film, it's definitely a very onanistic practice. And sometimes, and no one, and, and you, it's, you know, sometimes you really just need a lot of people around you just to keep you motivated and they keep you going. And I feel like sometimes as a movie writer, that's where it gets really sort of lonely. And also I start second guessing myself so much because mm. it's, yeah, but anyway. Well, Let's go back to that young Kevin Williamson who's just uh, had his first script, Sell for a Fortune, be made by Wes Craven. 
what's that opening night? Did you go to the Chinese theater or whatever to see it with an audience? Tell me well, about that experience. I went with um, Wes and uh, the producers of the movie and we all sort of traveled around in a big van and went from theater to theater and we hopped, we hopped around and we would watch um, kind of the opening scene. We would catch the opening scene and the ending of the movie and the theaters were always nice. They would, they would, we would tell them who we are and they would let us in and they would just let us sort of stand in the back. And I remember we saw the opening scene like three, three times in the ending. We went to like four or five theaters and then we had dinner. It was great. And um, Wes was, I had never done that before. I didn't realize that was something filmmakers did just to sort of see the reaction from the, from the audience. And I remember there were, you would see like two people get up and walk out. There was always like two people in a crowded theater and Wes would chase them out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they would be walking and they'd see this tall man coming up behind them to, going, excuse me, excuse me. And he wanted to know why they were leaving. And it was always the same. They, you know, they're not horror movie people. They, like they found their way into a movie they didn't belong in. And they would always be, I'm sorry, but it was always after Drew Barrymore got killed. And they were like, it's just too much for me. That's not- A movie movie. called Scream. They didn't know what they were getting into. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) um, And so there was always like one or two walkouts. Because I think that opening scene really affected a lot of people differently. And I think that opening scene, it always sent someone out of the theater. And I I just told that to Matt and Tyler. I told them, because they're going to do it on- Friday night, they're getting the same thing. They're getting a band. They're all going to go around to the theaters and sort of watch the movie. And I told them the story of Wes and um, how we did that in there the first time. And I said, so, you know, please carry on the tradition and, and chase the people out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something so exciting about that opening night when you have a hit and you had your hit right out of the box. I mean, I remember going to uh, the Chinese theater on opening night of Sleepwalkers. And it was 1,200 seats full. And it was it was a dream experience. Uh, and you never forget those things. And that's what you keep hoping to hit that ball over the, over the wall, you know? I know it's so much, and it's so awesome when it happens and it feels so good. And um, yeah, Scream was a, just the whole franchise. Scream 2, and Scream 2 was when, you know, they didn't, Dimension didn't really make a fuss with the first movie. It was sort of a small release and it just sort of built and built and built. But with the second one, that's when we had the big premiere and the big red carpet and all. And it was a hit. And that's when it got very Hollywood glamour. Right. <laughs> Where it got really fancy. And, um, and so that was a great experience. Well, you wrote Scream 2 and you wrote Scream 4. I take it that Scream 3 may have happened during the time of killing Mrs. Tingle? Um, Scream 3, I wrote an outline. I wrote like a 35-page outline for the movie. It took place in Woodsboro. Again, it didn't take place in Hollywood. And Wes, I think, was the one who said, let's change it to Hollywood because I think the schedule butted up against uh, Courtney's schedule with friends. And so we it would just have been easier for her to shoot it in town. Or And also, I think Nev might have still been doing Party 5 at the time. I can't remember. I, I, can't, I don't know the timeline on that. But I was doing... Uh, Dawson's Creek. I was doing Wasteland, a TV show for the Weinsteins. I was doing finishing post, I think, in Tingle. Bob had helped me. Bob had me step in with Halloween H2O. I had to write that movie. And I was on set with Steve Miner during that. And I was doing all of these things. I did not have time to write Scream 3. I said, let's just put a pin in it. 
Let's, or what am I supposed to do with all your other stuff? And right. he, they demanded that movie be made. And, and um, so I said, okay, you're on your own. I said, I contractually do. And, but at this, oh, yeah, I'm not going to get into the legal ramifications, but I actually had rights. It's <laughs> the first time I realized as a writer, I actually own rights to a lot of this and that I do not have to write this movie right now. I can, I can pause it. And then they sued me and, and oh, it turned into a really nasty thing. And it was really awkward because this was my family. These were the people that I had sort of um, connected to. And it wasn't personal, but the, um, and Wes wasn't involved. This was all Bob. And, um, and so finally we worked it out and they brought in Aaron Kruger to write Scream 3. And I don't know how much of my outline he used, but I do know they turned, they, they had a lot of, they did the house, they did a couple of the scares, but the killer and the motive and the, all of that was different. None of that was in my outline. None of, uh, so the, the, the big reveal and motive and all of that was definitely not me. And How did you feel when you saw the film? Well, I didn't see it for years. Oh, I, really? Yeah. I did, yeah, because it hurt. It really, really hurt. I felt, um, I felt betrayed a little bit, and whether you know whether that was the right feeling to have or not is totally up for <laughs> debate. I look because yeah, I had a right feeling life. to have is a feeling that you have. Well, it was my feelings at the time, and and you know, and I of course. Um, wanted to do it that's the one i really really wanted to be a part of and i wasn't and so i didn't see it i didn't go to the premiere i um i like i say the lawsuit left a lot of raw feelings and so i didn't bob and i weren't speaking um and i still had my three picture deal with him which was awkward and 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 so i was just doing my thing and just ignoring him and um then um that was that and then you know, um, and then finally I had an idea, I guess 10 years had passed. And I remember I was working on uh, the pilot of Vampire Diaries and I just had this idea for another screen. And I thought, oh, what if now all this time has passed, we revisit Woodsboro, what would that town be like? And so I, um, I uh, called Wes up and I said, well, you wanna have dinner? And we went to dinner and I sort of pitched him four and five and like a one-liner for number six, if four and five work. And I go, what do you think? He goes, I'm in, let's do it. I'm in. And I was like, how do we do this now and not have screen three happen? <laughs> I said, because <laughs> I said, you know, and because it's hard and, and I don't blame Bob either in a lot of ways because he's, he's got a studio to protect. You know, I've been around long enough now, you know, this is a business and the franchise of Scream is a very valuable commodity. And so that it's no longer just a story I cooked up in my bedroom. It's no longer just something I wrote on my computer late at night one night. It's actually a living, breathing thing that's worth a lot of money to a lot of people. And so that's why they have so many opinions and that's why they have so many notes. And that's why they're second guessing themselves because they're about to give you millions and millions of dollars to go make a movie. And so with all, knowing all of that, I, I tried to make Scream 4 ironclad proof that it was just, you know, bulletproof. And I uh, took it to them and um, they were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And then I wrote the script. And of course, they started all those sec that second guessing, all that, no, all the notes. It just turned into a development process. And I went, wait a second. We're actually in production. We have a start date. We can't be developing this script right now. We can't be doing this. What are we, you know, actors need to read a script. 
I like this script. Wes liked this script. And then so it was sort of Wes and I against the studio a lot, all the time. Uh-huh. You know, and whereas the first movie was this blessed experience of them just leaving us alone to go make our Look, Scream 1 was not without its problems. The studio looked at the dailies and freaked out at the very beginning. <laughs> they didn't oh, God. That. I remember they looked at the Drew Barrymore sequence. Like, There's no footage. Where's all the footage? Well, how are we going to cut this together? And, you know, and then, you know, Patrick Lussier cut it together and showed them how we were going to cut it together. And once they saw that, they shut up. But um, they, um, they, they didn't leave us alone with Stream 4. They just kept, you know, picking and picking and picking. And, at that, and it got to a point where I didn't recognize the script I was writing and everything I wanted it to be was sort of I was losing it. And that's and painful. So, it was so painful. And at that point, because of all the history and all, all the animosity that had occurred with Scream 3, I think, you know, um, the studio was just looking for a fight. I read every step of the way. And, and you know, Bob and I weren't really getting along. Um, he was a very difficult man for me. To, I felt like I didn't know how to please him. I didn't know how what he wanted. I thought what he wanted changed every five seconds. And, you know, he'd call me at three o'clock in the morning and say, I've got a great idea. And, uh, you know, it was that kind of relationship and it was very difficult for me. I didn't know how to navigate it. You know, I'm not, I, you know, I don't, I didn't come to Hollywood with, you know, as this, this um, you know, uh, fully developed human, as a fully developed human being who can <laughs> navigate crazy people. Um, so, yeah. and, and, um, uh, you know, God bless him. Uh, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, uh, but, you know, um, the entire experience, but, ultimately I had to walk away because I had Vampire Diaries was first and foremost my priority because I was 100% committed to Vampire Diaries. I love the Vampire Diaries. It was a restart for me. It was a reboot for me. And I loved being a part of that show. And I was making it with Julie Platt, who was Wes Craven's old assistant. And we were doing something we really, really loved. And it was first, and, and you know, they had first right. I, it was my primary job and I couldn't just run away and work on the screen the way that they wanted me to. And so I stepped away from it, but I wrote eight drafts of it. I mean, it's pretty much my movie. They had eight other writers come in and do something. <laughs> so yeah. I would have to watch the movie again and just sort of see which was mine and which wasn't. But uh, I know anyway. that feeling. I mean, we did Hocus Pocus. There were a total of a dozen writers, 11 writers oh, after me. Which yeah. number were you? I was number one. So I've got three credits on the movie and most of <laughs> most of what I wrote remained. Uh, well, that's good. So that's, good. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And so there were eight. When we went to arbitration, it was like eight writers. I was like, wow, I, I knew there were two. I didn't know there were eight. <laughs> eight, yes. <laughs> um, so is that why you moved into television, where the showrunner really is the boss? You know, you're talking about making decisions on, on production design and on costumes and casting and all mm-hmm. that are in feature films, those are left to the director. Right. But here you're the producer, executive producer, showrunner. Is that why television has been your metier more over the last uh, well, couple of I mean, 15 you know, years? I wish, I wish I could say that I had some brilliant master plan, but I didn't. I just did one foot, one foot in front of the other. And I've always been like, you know, oh, this sounds like a really good idea and a fun thing to do, so let me do this. And, and you know, I, I entered into this long-term relationship with Warner Brothers Television, which turned out to be a beautiful home for me. You know, it was just completely different than my family at Dimension. I, I actually had another professional experience that showed me what it's supposed to be like. And I had uh, the support of Peter Roth. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, but, yeah, I did a pilot for the WB back then. And so I love Peter Roth, and he was such a... Uh, a good advocate for my writing. He got me, he understood my writing. And um, 
Wonderful and, guy. And he was so supportive of me. I didn't want to go anywhere else. And um, I actually had a really great time developing that and then doing the following with him as well. Was Those were the two career highlights for me. I enjoyed making the Vampire Diaries and the following more than anything. Well, you kind of invented the WB with Dawson's Creek, pretty much, and yes. then it became the CW. And you've you've done so many series you, that you've created. Um, but I'd love to hear about your experience as a feature film director with teaching uh, Killing Mrs. Tingle, which I guess because it was at the time of Columbine became Teaching Mrs. Tingle, right? Yes, it did. It was um, 100% um, changed and we, we neutered it and, and vanilla it to bring it down to a PG rating. Um, it was a hard R originally and it was a much more violent story. It was a, it was a dark uh, satire, uh, I like to call it. It was very satirical and it was... Um, it was very in line with where I wanted to go. And as my next wave as the storyteller, I took my original strip for Tingle and I rewrote it and I sort of um, made it much, it was, it was a little more mature originally. And then um, Columbine, and I loved being a director. I loved it. I had so much fun. And I mean, I got to work with Helen Mirren. I mean, who gets to work with yeah. Helen in the first movie? I'm telling you, I, 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 um, uh, I, I have, I've had some wonderful, wonderful luck in my life. And um, well, tell me the difference in experience. You're directing a feature film for the first time, having had success as a screenwriter, but now it opened that door. Yes, and I met, and the good news is Wes had, you know, I got to use, you know, I, I met Wes's crew, all of these people who had been working for Wes for 20 years. And suddenly they became, you know, I, making Scream 1 and Scream 2, they were all my friends now. And I was able to go to Wes's AD and say, will you please come be my AD for this movie? And, and, and you know, I was able to go to Kathy Conrad and say, will you please produce this movie for me? And, and all these people, so I, I was able to do it with all these people that I already knew. And that was the great part about Tingle is I, I was surrounded with very, very talented people. I'm smart enough. I feel like that's one of the greatest things of my entire career is I've been smart enough to know that you've got to surround yourself with great people so that you look good. <laughs> and so I would get the most talented people. I, I was so insulated. And, um, and you know, I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. And I, I just feel like you can't, don't be that director that walks on this. You need to be confident and you need to instill confidence in others. But you also, you know, don't be a blower. Just walk in there. If you don't know something, say, hey, I don't know how that works. You need to explain that to me. I'm a writer. Let's talk, talk to me. <laughs> and I'm a fast study. And, um, and I learned so much from Wes. And by then I had been working on the faculty with Robert Rodriguez. And he, and he, he explained, like, he um, came over to my house when I had a camera and just started filming us. You know, uh, he, we tied my assistant and put him into the bed and tied him up. And he came in with a, a video camera and started telling me all the different ways to shoot one person tied up in a bed. Because I was worried about that because Helen Mirren was gonna be tied up in a bed for 45 minutes. How do you make that interesting? And so Robert Rodriguez came over and said, here's how you do it. <laughs> and he started <laughs> filming. And then he started cutting it together on a, on a VCR. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is a, is a genius. And so I had so much support. You know, I had so many people helping me. Um, so why haven't you done more of it tv once you get lost in television it yeah. just i mean i've got a movie now that i'm going to direct that oh, i'm awesome in, yes i have a movie on netflix that i've just written and just made a deal with netflix for me to direct this year and so um god willing that will start hopefully soon but i don't want to talk let's not talk about it because i don't want to jinx it no no um, we won't do that 
but um yes that was a, it was a great experience i can't wait to do it again but i kind of feel like as a showrunner you kind of do it every day so right right you have guest directors who fulfill your vision yeah. well yeah and if you and if you have a lot of great directors that you work with time and time again and they get you and, and you have a shorthand with them and, and it just makes it life easier and i've got a i've got a lot of wonderful talented directors i've worked with well, I don't want to run out of time before we get into the new screen. This was oh, okay. something that was going to exist whether you were a part of it or not, but you were invited to be a part of that. Tell yes. me about your thoughts and uh, when you first heard that there was going to be, it's not really a reboot because it's a continuation with some of the original characters. Yes, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a reboot, it's a sequel, it's everything mixed together. It's, um, you know, they took you know, I, I so didn't want to be a part of it in the beginning. And um, I had so many mixed emotions about it. I, I didn't know how to feel. It's like part of me just wanted to say, had already said goodbye to it when West passed. And um, and when Miramax and Dimension had sort of dissolved their company and they kind of sort of went their stuff, they went their, whatever happened to them. And um, I just felt like it was over. It was like a beautiful part of my career in the beginning, but now it's there, you know, it's, it's over. And then they came to me, Jamie Vanderbilt started it. He took me to lunch and he really was um, adamant about me being a part. And I'm like, well, what part am I gonna play? You're not asking me to write it. You're not asking me to really produce it. What, where's, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, they're like, well, we can't make it without you. I go, but what am I gonna do? And they're like, Whatever you want, you, you know, what do you wanna do? You want to, you know, we want your, we want you to, 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 to make, to, to, to fact check us, to make sure we're doing it right and that we're honoring Wes Craven. And I went, okay, well, I can do that. You know, I mean, I said no at first, but then I slept on it and was realizing that I don't, you know, I don't want Scream to happen without me. So I called them up and was like, yes, I'll do it. You know, please dedicate it to Wes. And if you can guarantee that we'll do that and uh, I'll gladly do it. And I and it was the best decision I ever made. So tell me what you did on the set. Um, I they sent me this, they pitched it to me. I gave I gave them my feedback. They sent me the script. I gave them my notes. <laughs> they um, they I um, uh, um, and um, I went to the set and I hung out. <laughs> and then <laughs> they, they sent me a cut of the movie. I gave them my thoughts and then I gave them my notes and sent me four to, you know, every time they re-edited the movie, they sent it to me and I gave them my notes. And I, you know, and I was just part of the, I was just part of the opinion gallery. I was part of the peanut gallery. <laughs> the people that I never, that I always hated hearing from, I became them. And um, they were so lovely to me. They were so nice and they, they listened to me and they respected everything I had to say. And I, they made, they made it such a joyous experience. They, they made it special. I mean, I, if you know, Matt and Tyler, um, if you've met them, they, they're very gentle and kind and, and sweet human beings the same way and chat and sad and the same way that um, Wes was. And so, yeah, and they, so many people within the genre really are that way. Yes, exactly. And I, uh, I find everyone's so weird. Oh, you're, I use the people who meet me. They're like, whoa, wait, you write all the blood and guts. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> we get it out. 
Yeah, we get it out. But I will tell you, I, you, you know, you show me real blood, I freak. Um, That's uh, not uncommon with the genre people. I've found that they are some of the most squeamish people at all, but they don't repress their dark dreams. No, we don't. We write up it. We also, nothing will make me jump more than a jump scare. <laughs> I will be watching a movie. I'm horrible to watch a movie with because I really do still physically react to movies, which um, is always fun. And what what was the first movie that really made you physically react? Jaws. Really? Jaws. Yeah. yeah. You come out here and shovel some of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Jaws really made me react. And um, and Halloween, of course. But, um, you know, even probably little old movies like Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, probably that made me react as a kid, but I didn't know what I was watching. Um, but... Um, yeah, and uh, the new the new screen turned out to be a really blessed experience. I was so happy that they included me and that they've been so nice to me and and they've been respectful. They've actually like let me participate. And they, when I talked, they actually listened to me, and I felt um, I felt a part of it. I became friends with these guys, and and I really think that Wes would be so happy with this movie. I, I, I truly say that, and I believe it in my heart. And so I think he would watch this. I think he would hug these guys. I think he would, um, he would love them. I think he would just love this entire, everyone was just so, we were, we were always trying to honor Wes Craven through every step of this process. And it was good for me because I, I you know, Wes changed my life and he was everything. And I think about him every day and, you know, it's just been a good, it, it was, it's been good for me to be a part of this movie. Well, it's great to be able to get your love for Scream back again. Yes, 100%. And so I'm very grateful for the whole process. And it's been, you know, it, it's been such a cathartic experience, really also because, you know, I, you know, when I look at someone like Wes, he changed my life. Everything changed after Scream. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful for so many people that allowed that to happen. But I also look to Wes as, as sort of the, the, the beacon, the sort of the guiding light that sort of led me down the path of what I'm doing. Um, you know, even when he didn't know he was doing it through Nightmare on Elm Street, all the way to um, letting me sit the location van and go scout with him and so forth. And what great memories and a blessed life and career. Yeah. And we can't go out on a higher note than that. Kevin, I can't Sorry. thank you enough. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for opening up with us here. And, yes, well, uh, my pleasure. Sorry, I didn't mean to go there. <laughs> it's a great place to end up. All Thanks, right. Kevin. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.